Well, good morning, Gateway. So it's good to be back, and um, we're getting back into our, almost at the end of our message series, Eyes Wide Open. There are some copies left available. We'll be, they'll be available in the lobby out there this today, and next Sunday, next Sunday is going to be the last part of this message series, and um, if you have bought the book, even if you bought it here, if you have an Amazon account, go onto Amazon and upload a review for me, will you? That will, if you like to, only if you like to upload a review, <laughs> and that will really help me, um, uh, it, will, it will help because Amazon will then show that book to people who read similar things. So um, please do that and uh, keep the message going, even after we've finished here. So today, this message is called Under Arrest. Can we put the title up? Not under arrest. (laughs) Many Christians feel like they live their Christian life constantly being watched by God. You know, like the divine sheriff in town who's always checking up to see if you've done something wrong so that he can arrest you. Or with other Christians, it's not so much, maybe they have a better image of God than that, but they also have this image of the devil, that the devil is always on their back and it is always watching them and waiting to see if they've done something wrong so that he can then get a foothold kind of thing in their life. Can you imagine, whether you think it's God or whether you think it's the devil, can you imagine the psychological insecurity that people must live with if they think that some almighty, all-present, invisible being is watching everything they do and is disapproving of all of it. Can you imagine the effect that that must have on you? Compare that to the songs that we've just sung about how this almighty, all-present God is also all-loving and all-forgiving and is for us and not against us and wants to work in our life for our good. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, Plans to bring about the future that you hope for. That is a totally different perception than many people live under. Instead of feeling like we're going to be arrested at any moment, we're going to be rebuked, we're going to be judged at any moment, we can then truly live resting in the fact that God loves us. We are his children. He holds us in his hands. When we go astray and do things wrong, he wants to win us back and set our feet on the right path once again. And what a different perception that we have of God. And so with this message series and following the the way the book the book is broken down into three parts. And so the first part is about what we refer to as four spiritual diseases that many, many people live under. 
And uh, we looked at those, they were diseases like legalism. Instead of living our life from faith in God, who by a free gift changes us and guides us and transforms us, very often we go to the Bible and we try to get a whole list of rules and we impose them on us from the outside and then we spend our life trying to live up to those rules. Now legalism does two negative things, one to you and one to other people. The negative thing that it does to you is that it causes you to live your entire Christian life under a burden of guilt and shame because you can never live up to this perfect standard, this legalistic standard, this religious law code. You can never live up to it. Even when you feel you're doing good, it's not good enough. Even when you, you're praying, you're not praying longer, long enough or strong enough or with enough faith. Even when you're reading the Bible, okay, you read a little bit of the Bible today, but you've not read enough of it. You know, if you give money, okay, you gave money, but you didn't give enough. It, you can never do enough. So you live under this feeling that you are a failure as a Christian. And if you're, if you're living amongst other legalistic Christians who are putting on a good face at being a Christian, that makes you feel even more of a failure. Because not only can you not live up to this law code, you can't live up to what everybody else is living up to. What you don't know is none of them are living up to it either. They all feel the same. Living your Christian life, feeling like a spiritual failure, that God is always disappointed, the eternally disappointed one in heaven. Oh, here they go again, you know. And it leaves you with a burden of guilt and shame. A burden that Jesus Christ took on the cross to free you from. Why are we living under that? You are forgiven. Then the other negative thing that it does is it has a negative effect on other people because none of them are living up to this religious law code that you've got. And one of the ways to get over your guilt and shame is to make yourself feel a little bit more superior to other people who are not living up to it as well. Oh my goodness, look at that person you know, and before you know it, the law code gets stricter and stricter and stricter until it gets to the point of the ridiculous. I read a blog by a church, some church that don't allow women to wear high heels to the church. And I thought, is it something to do with the flooring? Do they not want the flooring damaged? And then I remembered before, before we paved the parking lot when it was gravel. Remember at this time of year at spring when the snow melted? You would look out there and women with high heels were like sunk into the... <laughs> they were sinking. So I, I thought, I wonder what the reason is. So I read on. Because that's what hookers wear. And I thought, I'm more concerned about the pastor that wrote this article. If that's the first thing that comes into his mind when he sees high heels, (laughs) 
the law codes get ridiculous and nobody can live up to them. But then if you've got flat shoes on, you can judge all the stiletto women, can't you? You see, so not only do you live under guilt and shame yourself, you live under a judgmental spirit towards everybody else. That sounds a lot more like the Pharisees than it sounds like the Lord Jesus Christ to me. And, and so we get into another one was dualism, making the devil much bigger than he really is and living under constant fear. It's all connected with that. Another one is fearing that the devil is going to take over the world and the future is filled with doom and gloom because there's only a few of you, like there's only like 16 of you in your little group that keep all the rules correct, you know. And so these things are spiritual diseases. And then we went on to the second section in the book, which like takes a completely different topic. And we talked, we looked at God's great plan of the ages and how In the scriptures, it talks about ages, ages past and ages to come, and how one major transition took place when Jesus was here and when the New Testament was being written, when the old religious age was passing away and a new age was coming into being. We saw how even in the stars and in all creation, this message of God's huge, great plan of the ages is written in the stars, written in creation as well as written in Scripture, and that God is gradually and progressively working in this planet, helping humanity to lay aside all of our dysfunctional and destructive and unhealthy things and coming more and more into alignment with the way God always intended us to live. Now, There's two reasons that those two subjects, the four spiritual diseases and then God's big plan of the ages, there's two reasons that they're connected. Um, One reason is because those four spiritual diseases make God seem much smaller than he really is. And they make him seem, God seem like a kind of petty tyrant who's really uptight about little things. And when we get a picture of how great God is and how his plan will come to pass and how he works all things together for our good and how this isn't just some idea that he kind of like slipped in when Jesus came, but for ages past he has been preparing humanity for the coming of Christ. And after Christ came, there are now ages in which we will outwork all of that and learn and put it into practice that God has a great big plan, we realize how big he is and how even if we do slip up, even if we do make mistakes, even if we do believe things that aren't quite accurate, even if we are not perfect yet, even though we are still a work in progress, that God himself has promised that his plan will come to pass, that he is a big God with a big plan and a big heart for a great big world and that he is at work. And so The first way they're connected is the fact that when we see how big God is, we see how ridiculous it is to make him so small. But the second way they're connected is when we realize that at the time of Jesus, a big change in the ages took place. And these things that we regard as spiritual diseases, these things passed away at that time. 
Why would we ever go back and try to resurrect unhelpful religious rules and ceremonies when the whole reason, the whole thing that they spoke of has now come to pass? Let me show you the chart of the ages again. You know, the Old Testament, the Old Testament age, when Jesus was born, it was already coming to an end. And at the birth of Jesus, the new covenant had not yet come into place until his death and resurrection, but this new age in their calendar had come. And that little T that you see there stands for transition. As one age is dying out, but it has not fully died out yet, and a new age has been born, but it's not fully manifested yet, in that transition period, that was when Jesus came. That is what the Bible calls the last days. The last days of the old covenant age. The end of an age. Jesus came during that time. All of the New Testament was written during that transition period. The old covenant was, was passing away, but it finally fully passed away in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, when the sacrificial system passed away, when the priesthood passed away, when all of that stuff passed away. Um, that was when the, the old age finally came to an end. And the book of Hebrews has a verse that explains this really clearly. Let's put this up. The book of Hebrews says this. It says, this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. So this is about something new happening on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. You see, we're not saying, hey, we don't live by the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments and all of that. Therefore, you can do whatever you want. I know the Ten Commandments says don't murder, but go and kill anybody you want. It's all all right now. We're not saying that at all. What we're saying is, that God never intended for us to read a list and then strive to try to obey it. God wanted a relationship with us where he works deep within us, in our hearts and in our minds, and he changes us. He transforms us from the inside out. And we don't want to do things that are wrong, not because we've got a law code and we're scared of being caught, but because we've got changed hearts and changed minds and we, we've been totally forgiven and we've been totally blown away by how much God loves us and that has blown us away so much that now we want to be better people from the inside. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me and I will forgive their sins. Shout out, I am forgiven. forgiven. You know, you need to sometimes just look in the mirror in the morning and shout that. If you feel like you blew it the day before and you got into an d- argument with someone or you, 
you're, you've woken up with a bad attitude, just stand there and look and say, I am forgiven. Today is a new day. His mercies are new every morning. And he says, and I will never remember them again. So then when you go to God and you say, God, you know that sin I, I committed last week? And he's going to say, what one was that? You know, I, I've confessed it to you. You know, A, B, and C. No, I can't remember that one. I, f- I can't remember it. Oh, come on, God, you, you have a good memory. You must, no, I don't remember it. I have forgiven it. I don't remember it. I don't cast it up to you in three years' time. Well, there you go again. I knew you would never change. Now look at this last sentence. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he he has made the first one obsolete. So when Jesus died on the cross, paid the price for our sins, was laid in the tomb, rose again three days later, appeared to his disciples and said there's a new covenant, ascended to heaven and gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. At that point, the old covenant was obsolete. It had not yet fully passed away. There was still going to be one generation that the temple was there and all the sacrifices were happening, but they were a waste of time. It was obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. The author to the book of Hebrews said it will soon disappear and within a few years it did. So when we think of God's great plan of the ages, God knew that a day would come even during the Old Testament when there's Old Testament prophets and there's priests and there's a king that sits upon the throne of Israel and there's a temple in the city of Jerusalem that people have to go to to worship God. Even though all of that was going on, none of that was God's dream for the world anyway. All of that was a temporary measure to re-educate humanity that the law code tells us there is right and wrong. There is things that are sinful. There are things which are not good, which are not right. And when you have done them, you need forgiveness. And the, the animal sacrifices were a symbol of somebody else dying in your place. And you went to the temple to worship God. And there was a priesthood there. But God always planned for that to pass away. God was looking for a day where we don't go to the temple. We are the temple. He dwells within us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where we're not trying to live up to a law code. But he's changing our hearts and minds. And our conscience is being refined. And we're wanting to live a life that pleases God and blesses other people. That we don't go to a priest, that we're all priests. We can all pray to God anytime we want and we don't offer any sacrifices because they were just a symbol of the full and final sacrifice which was Jesus Christ himself on the cross. It was always God's plan to get rid rid of all that stuff and for us to live forgiven and free. Let me show you, let me show you some of these things. Next point, God originally wanted to have a relationship with the people of Israel. And he, when, he, when he gave Moses, when he spoke to Moses and Moses came up the mountain, God originally invited them all to come up the mountain. But they were scared. They had this image of God that he was scary. And they were scared. And so they asked for a law code instead. 
Exodus 20 says that they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak directly to us or we'll die. So Moses goes up the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments and comes back and says, right, okay, this is what you have to do. So now instead of the people having a direct relationship with God, they have a religion that they're having to live up to. Also, not only was this living up to a law code, not God's exam, not God's dream, having a human king ruling over them was never part of God's, of God's dream as well. And that was also part of the Old Testament. Let's look at that. God originally wanted to be Israel's king, but he asked for a human one instead. You know, God wants to be our king. He wants to rule and reign in our hearts and lives. And it says, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old. Samuel was a prophet at this time and he was like a spokesman for God. You are old and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. They looked around and they thought, well, all the other nations have got a king and a temple and a religion and a law code and a sacrificial. We want what they've got too. Anyway, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, listen to all the people were saying. It's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected as their king. But if that's where they're at, God is prepared to work with us where we are at while he's planning to lead us on to something better. Even all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, I mean, like, they're they must be difficult to read if you're a vegan or something like that, you know? There's a lot of blood there. Do you know God never intended any of that in the first place? It's just that humanity was so dim, he had to teach us, he had to educate us about why the Savior was going to come. Let's look. God never wanted animal sacrifices in the first place, as they can never atone for sin. But humanity needed a time period to gradually and progressively understand the truly loving, fatherly nature of God. Isaiah in the Old Testament and Hebrews in the New Testament tell us that God's saying, do you think I want all these animal sacrifices? Look what he says, I'm sick of all your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Hebrews tells us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Do you see when you read things in the Old Testament, and sometimes it's like, oh boy, they were weird things. That is what if you want the theological term, it's called progressive revelation. God couldn't reveal everything to us at one time. If Jesus had just beamed down from heaven and said to everyone, hello, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah, and I will atone for your sins and bring you eternal life so that you may know God again. You know, people would have said, what's a Messiah? What are sins? Saved from what? Which God are you talking about? We've got idols of hundreds of them. They wouldn't have understood it. So God gradually reveals a little bit to humanity that as much as they can understand 
to lift them to a higher level of understanding, then reveals a little bit more and they give up some of the wrong ideas and it lifts them to a higher level and so on as we are step by step taken into the fact that none of that stuff was what God intended. God always wanted to be a father with a family. He always wanted relationship. He always wanted to see when his children made a mess of things. He never wanted to pour his wrath on them. He always wanted to take them in his arms and brush them down and say, come on, let's try again. God is a good God. And the four spiritual diseases make us think of him as a small God. But when we see that he has a big, big plan of the ages, and all of these things were things that we were supposed to lay aside, it becomes easier to never get trapped in them again. Let's just look briefly at them for a few minutes. Let's look at them again. Legalism. Let's look at the subject of legalism. Legalism is when we are still trying to live up to this external law. And not only is that not helpful, it is downright unhelpful. Look, you have died to the law. You have died. I remember once I was speaking in a conference in the United States. There's, there's a video of it online someplace, somebody showed me recently, and there was a question and answer time at the end. And I don't know why, but this guy stood up, and I, I don't like question and answer times for two reasons. I don't like them in some places, like Canada, because nobody asks a question. <laughs> Does anybody have a question? Nobody has a question. Then I'm making my way across the parking lot to my car, and 500 people have a question. <laughs> right? But nobody wants to. Be. But then in other places, people then ask questions that have bear no relation to anything I just spoke about. So this guy puts his hand up and he said, I've got a question about the Sabbath. Why do we keep all the Ten Commandments except the one about the Sabbath? Um, the Sabbath is a Saturday. And why are we not observing the Saturdays? I said to him, I don't keep the Ten Commandments. He said, what? I said, maybe you only... Don't keep one of them. I don't keep any of them. But like you're committing adultery and all of that stuff and dishonoring your parents and stealing. No, no, no. No. I don't need Ten Commandments to stop me doing that. I have learned that those are not good things to do. Okay. <laughs> I have given up living the old life and God has forgiven me for all the commandments I've broken in the past and all the ones I may break in the future. He has forgiven me and he has put a desire in my heart to live a life that honors him and blesses others. I don't live under any stinking commandments. I have got a new, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, the commandment of love. Love the Lord with your whole being and love other people like you love yourself. Jesus said, if you do that, you won't have to worry about any other commandments. And so, we have died to the law because we're now part of the body of Christ and you are united to him who was raised from death in order that we might live a tight, restricted little religious life. Is that what it says? What kind of life? A bountiful life, a full and overflowing life. 
For when we lived according to our human nature, all the law did was stir up sinful desires within us. All you have to do is put a sign on a cupboard door when you've got kids that says, do not open and go out of the room and the only cupboard they will open is the one that says, do not open. All religious laws do. I live in St. Albert where they are artificially lowering the speed limit. I want to tell you, everything in my human nature wants to hit the gas, I'm telling you. You think, what? That speed's ridiculous, you know. It makes you Laws make you want to break them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, or is that just me? But it says it here. (laughs) It says all the law does is stir up the desire to break it. And everything we do ends in death. Now, however, we are free from the law. Shout free from the law. Because we died to that which once held as prisoner. See these legalistic Christians that you'll meet and they'll say, well, you should be doing this and that. What, you want me to become a prisoner? That's what it says. It made us a prisoner. No longer, this is my sentence, my main one, no longer do we serve the old way of a written law but in the new way of the Spirit. You see, when we realize that the age has changed when Jesus was here, that old age has passed away, and everything in it is the old way. Why are we wanting to go back to the old way? That's like living in a house with air conditioning and heating and indoor plumbing, and you want to go back and live in a shack with an outhouse, it freezes in the winter, You want to go back to the old way? The old way is cold and it stinks. The new way is warm and alive and fresh and invigorating and spiritually fulfilling. The new way of the Spirit. What about futurism? That one when we push when we read prophecies in the Bible and we push them off onto our future and we think, oh, look, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. When we realize that the last days, the end of the age was when the old age was passing away and the old covenant was coming to an end and all of those prophecies in the Old Testament and all of those prophecies that Jesus gave about the end of the age was something that would be fulfilled there and then and it too has passed away, you can begin to live free from fear of the future because instead of a future of doom and gloom, you see a future of an advancing kingdom of God where God's dream for this world will come to pass. He is is better than it used to be and it will get better yet as God's new world continues to emerge amongst us and people begin to live by the new way of living from their heart and from their spirit. Jesus said, talking about the great tribulation and the end of the age, he said, this generation will not pass away until all those things are fulfilled. And during that time when one age was dying and a new age was being born, at the change, at the transition of the ages, all of that stuff came to pass. 
and the things that the book of Revelation talks about, it said that those things were going to happen soon, and they did. They happened within the lifetime of the people who, who actually saw them. You know, I, I, I just wanted to say this as well. Sometimes people find security in buying into a system of belief. And I am not suggesting that if you have you know, believed all, that all of these future, all these prophecies are future, the Antichrist and the beast and the great tribulation and plagues and earthquakes and all of that, if, if that has all been, in, and you believed something called futurism over here, I am not saying, and, and to, to, be, to believe that a prophecy has been fulfilled now in the past has got a name too, it's called preterism. I'm not saying give up this belief, this set of beliefs, and adopt this set of beliefs, I'm saying whenever you come across a prophecy in Scripture, don't jump to any conclusions. Oh, oh well, it must be future because they're all future. It must be past because they're all past. No, read it in context. Just read it in context and see what it says. As your eyes are open to the actual context of the passage, all of a sudden things will fall into place and you'll see where, where they fit in God's great plan of the future. We talked away weeks ago also about another disease, dualism. So, and we looked at passages related to that, but how does that intersect with this big change of the ages? Now, dualism is something that it is very hard to explain for people to grasp it as a concept, and it's very easy for us to see it where it doesn't exist. So I want to just, in case you weren't here weeks and weeks ago when we talked about dualism, I want to say again what it is not. Dualism is not saying that there are two things, you know, like male and female, matter and spirit. Dualism is not saying that there's two, there are two things. Two things are not bad. You know, God made the heavens and the earth, spirit and matter. And the Bible says when he looked at his creation, he said, behold, it is good. He didn't say it was bad because it was two things. God made mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, two things. That's not dualism, that's not bad. Dualism is when you take two things that are equal or of equal importance and you make them enemies of each other and say that one is good and one is bad. You know, so um, you could, that males and females are supposed to work together in harmony. Or they can fight against each other with radical feminism and misogyny attacking each other. You know, all women are dumb idiots. Oh, all men are brute beasts. You know, before you know it, you've got, that's dualism. Making two things that should be in unity opposed to each other. Or another way of dualism is to take two things that are not equal at all, something that's really big and something that's really small, and try to make them in, like God and the devil. They are not equal to each other. God is omnipresent, the devil's not. God is all-powerful, the devil is defeated. 
And they are not in equal opposition to each other. That is dualism. But we tend to see, because of our Western culture, we tend to read things. So I found a verse. This was the most dualistic verse I could find in the entire Bible. And if you're going to see dualism anywhere, you're going to see it here. But I want to show you it doesn't even exist here. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, I have sent you to the people to do what? To open their eyes. I noticed that Drake, when he was throwing the books out, said, I don't want to put somebody's eye out. I don't know if he if meant that. <laughs> I noticed somebody online accused me of being part of the Illuminati. <laughs> what does God want to do? He wants to do what? Open our so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Oh, look, darkness, light, Satan, God. Sometimes people take this verse and they make it dualistic. Have you ever heard people talking about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Satan? They'll talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light. But we have to be careful of the kingdom of darkness. The king you read the Bible carefully. There is nowhere anywhere in Scripture that it says that the devil has a kingdom or that there's a kingdom of darkness. Darkness does not exist in and of itself. Darkness is simply the absence of light. When the light shines in the darkness, there ain't no darkness anymore. And this passage is saying people are so caught up in darkness. They're so caught up with the power of Satan. They're so caught up with sin. But actually, if God opens their eyes, all of a sudden they see that none of this stuff has any power. They can just turn from it. And they're in the light. You can be living in a dark room and you can be terrified of the darkness because you don't know what's in there. But if you open the door and step into the light, the darkness has no power. It's not grabbing you by the clothes and trying to drag you back in there again. It has zero power. When God opens your eyes to see how good he is, how great he is, and what a wonderful plan he has for the entire cosmos in general, and for you in particular, it causes all the darkness to fall away. It causes all of the so-called power of the devil to fall away. It causes all of the grip of sin in your life to fall away. It doesn't say struggle with the darkness, struggle with the devil, struggle with sin. It's says, turn with your eyes open and behold how good the Lord is. And that is what will change your life. I mentioned a picture a few weeks ago on the internet. I found it. So can we put it up? Or next? There is, this comes up all the time. I mean, this is not Christianity. But Christians post this all the time. This is dualism. It's closer to Gnosticism or Zoroastrianism or Manichaeism. If you don't know what any of that is, be blessed that you don't. It's, it's closer to those strange religions than it is Christianity. 
Jesus is not in an eternal arm wrestling match with the devil. Jesus defeated the devil 2,000 years ago and when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's finished. And look, this guy would give you nightmares. Do you know, do you know there's a story that there's two stories, one from the Reformation and one from the time of the Pentecostal movement. In the Reformation, there's a story where Martin Luther woke up in the middle of the night and had an apparition of the devil stand, standing in his bedroom. And instead of saying, oh, it's the devil, oh my goodness, he's come to get me. Oh God, oh help me Lord. Do you know what he did? He had been writing on a table and his ink pot was here. He, picked, he said, I picked up my ink pot and threw it at him and went back to sleep. And then there's a story from the early days of the Pentecostal movement when the evangelist Smith Wigglesworth said that he experienced a similar thing. He woke up one night with a fearful apparition of the devil in his bedroom. Do you know what he said? Oh, it's only you. And he rolled over and went back to sleep. He says, I'm not wasting any time talking to him. Jesus dealt with him 2,000 years ago. He's not some big monster. He is defeated. Defeated, de-handed, de-teethed, and everything else. He has had everything de taken away from him. Now, I've got one more picture to show you, but before I do, don't put it up yet. Before I do, I want to tell you about it. If you go into cathedrals and church, old church buildings, you'll see that a very common picture is a picture of the archangel Michael fighting with the devil and, and kicking the devil out of heaven. And usually it's kind of like this one, you know, Michael's like a big dude and the devil's like a big dude and they're, mar they're, they're locked in this cosmic battle. But see if you go back to the earliest Christian paintings you can find. I'm going to show you what they're like. Put up the next picture. There's Michael, and there's the devil. He's like a little bat with bat wings. That's what the early Christians thought of the devil. But see, once you get into the Middle Ages and Dante's Inferno and all of that kind of stuff, and paintings of demons with big fangs, in those paintings, the devil eventually gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger till he's the same size as Michael in these paintings. That, my friends, is dualism. That's not what the devil's like. Are you saying there's no devil? No, I'm saying he's a little bat getting jabbed in his butt with a big lance. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that he is defeated and has no power over us unless we live our lives in some kind of religious fear of darkness instead of knowing that Jesus has set us free. I want to put up this quote by Wallace Wattles. I've told you this before a few times. I love this quote. Uh, he lived 1860 to 1911, and he said, theologians and physicians have never quite gotten down to the fact that this is a singular universe. I mean, the, the name should tell you, universe, universe. It's all one. Everything in the universe is connected. A singular universe. It will be a great day for the world when they do. Preachers still insist that this is a dual verse, that there is a devil who is nearly or quite as strong as God. 
And doctors believe in disease as an entity, a real evil which has power in itself. But Jesus pointed out that there is no devil apparent in nature. It is your father, said he, who makes the sun shine and sends the rain, who clothes the grass of the field and feeds the birds. This is God's world. The devil cannot make the sun rise or set. He cannot stop the grass from growing or starve the birds. He has not as much power as a scarecrow. He cannot keep the crows out of the corn. He is defeated, people, and Jesus is alive. If, you can, if that's all you get, you will be happy the rest of your life. Believe me. The last thing we want to just look at is this, literalism. And this is where it all comes from. It all comes from us having, you know, all of these things are misunderstandings of Scripture. It's not that bad people have said, let's invent false teachings that will make the Christian life harder to live and will make God feel smaller and further away and will make the devil feel bigger and close by. That is, people didn't do that. People get into these things with the best of intentions. They think, I, I want to please God, so I need, to write, I need to go to the Bible and get a list of all the things that will please him and all the things that will displease him and live up to they get into it with the best of intentions. But very often we misunderstand Scripture. And you know, there, there is this theory that goes about that anybody can just read the Bible and totally understand it. And um, I saw recently a friend of mine who's an author, he had posted something on social media, just a quote and it was a perfect, like, there was nothing wrong with it. It wasn't controversial in any way. It was a perfectly normal quote. And the first comment was a woman saying to him, well, I don't read any books at all except the Bible. And I don't know where you got your theology from, but I can tell you it's wrong. Now, this, this guy has been studying the Bible for decades, right? <laughs> That was it. She's like, I just read the Bible and so I can tell you you're wrong. And then somebody else commented underneath her and I thought it was a brilliant comment. He said, that would be like reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but not knowing anything about the historical background of Nazi Germany. If you read his biography, you would start to live in fear of a Hitler who died a long time ago. <laughs> but you don't know that because you don't know the historical background. And many people are like that. And you know something? That's why the Bible says God has called certain people to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that they can devote their life to research and study. Look, in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he's reading the prophecy about how the Messiah will come. And the Messiah will die for our sins. And he's reading it but not understanding it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. 
So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And Philip did explain it, and the man put his faith in Christ, and Philip baptized him. And so, folks, if you could just go to, to the end, to the ages chart again at the very end here, I want, I want us to know that if you have been caught up at all in your Christian life, struggling with shame and guilt, or struggling with fear and anxiety, the shame and guilt can be, could be because of legalism and judgmentalism and the fact that you feel like a failure and you're not living up to things the way that you should. And the fear and anxiety could be caused by your belief that the devil can attack you at any time, that he's big and mighty, or that the future is really bad. I have actually met people, people have told me that they made a decision, decisions that they now regret later in life, that they made decisions not to go to university, not to build careers, not to have children, because they went to churches where they were taught that any day now the Antichrist is going to take over the world and Christians are going to be beheaded and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And they put the, they pressed the pause button on their life and 30 years later, deeply regret having bought into that dysfunctional version of the Christian faith. The truth doesn't put you in bondage. The truth shall set you free. And the old covenant age has passed away. And with it, all of its law code and all of its legal legalism and judgmentalism that the Pharisees bought into. And all sin has been atoned for, and the powers of darkness have been defeated. And we're now living in an age, we're living in an age where we're supposed to live by a free gift of God's grace, and where we are forgiven, and where He works in our life, and He's changing us step by step and making us into new people. And He's working with the whole of the cosmos step by step and taking it into more and more greater ages to come. Let's finish with one scripture, and then we're going to pray again. I want us to look at this last scripture. This is something that you, you, will, know, you will know parts of this well. But let's look at it in context. It's to do with the ages. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Seated means we are resting. Seated with Christ in the heavenly realms means that we are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're not trying to earn your salvation. It was given to you as a free gift. And you're not trying to work hard to keep it. You are kept safe in God's hands. You are resting. Your faith is now at rest, seated in heavenly realms with Christ, in order that in the coming ages, many ages, not just one, there are ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, of his free gift of love, his free gift of forgiveness, his free gift of himself, not anything we could earn, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's masterpiece. You're a work in progress. You're like a big lump of marble that God is chipping all the rough edges away and making you into a beautiful sculpture. You're not what you're going to be, but you're not what you used to be. You're a work in progress, a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do, to discover our life purpose and live it out to the full. Let's read on. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone, to explain it, to, to take the mystery out of it, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the principalities and powers. They are defeated. They need to know that God is saying, these people are now my children. You've got no hold on them. You've got no touch in them. You've got no right to them. According to his purpose, of the ages, from ages past to ages to come, which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want us all to stand. We're going to pray again. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, the Aramaic version of it, and we're going to see how this prayer tells us that from one age to the next, God is at work, gradually lifting us out of everything that is wrong and gradually and progressively bringing us in to everything that is right. <clears throat> okay, let's lift up our hands, lift up our hearts, lift up our voices, and let's pray this together. Are you ready, church? Let's go. Beloved Father, who fills all realms, may you be honored in me. Let your divine rule come now. Let your will come true in all the universe, in the heavens and on earth. Give us all that we need for each day and untangle the knots of unforgiveness that bind us within as we also let go of the guilt of others. Let us not be lost in superficial things, but let us be free from that which keeps us from our true purpose. From you comes all rule, the strength to act, and the song that beautifies all from age to age. Amen. Let's give him a praise, church.